There was one um, VC pitch that we went to that at the end of the conversation, they said, we, we love you guys. We love your background. You guys have like totally made the successful company. Can we ask you one question that's really been nagging at us? And we're like, okay, yeah, sure, of course. And they're like, why fashion, right? Like finance, banking, computer science, design. Why did you guys choose fashion? Isn't that somewhat cliche? And I think it was a very poignant question, but it also points to the need that we were solving, which are that why not fashion? From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, you're about to meet the two founders behind Kuyana. It's a fashion brand whose philosophy is fewer, better things. Yes, a company that is actually encouraging us to buy less. They realized the gap between access to quality and price point, and they set out to create a company that teaches customers how to maintain and invest in the items that we buy. Think the anti-fast fashion. Something else that intrigued me about this company is that they've decided not to sell on Amazon and instead are focusing their attention on Instagram. And I wanted to talk to them about what that means for other businesses, because I think there's a lot to be learned there. I'd also like to mention that they made it to this interview after a 12-hour flight delay. They lost their luggage, which had the entire fall and holiday sample collection in it. They had to run back to the airport to recover it in the pouring rain. And then they came here straight to the interview. And we're 30 minutes late, but we're not going to hold it against them. That is the life of an entrepreneur. Here are Carla Gallardo and Shilpa Shah to tell you their story. Hi. 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 Thank you for your patience. Of course. Thanks for coming. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, please. I I mean, like, I feel like it's so... (laughs) perfectly instructive about the life of an entrepreneur and what all of this really looks like. So it's perfect. It's actually very true. So I want to welcome both of you to No Limits. Carla Gallardo, you're the co-founder and CEO of Kuyana. And Shilpa Shah, you're the co-founder and CXO. And that's the chief experience officer. We're going to get to that. But I want to start this conversation with what happened before the conversation, because I feel like it's so perfect. It completely explains what the life of an entrepreneur really is. <laughs> yeah. So you just got here, Shilpa, in the pouring rain. In the pouring rain um, after making a quick side trip back to Newark Airport where we landed at 3 in the morning. So I just went back at 2 p.m. to go rec- so to go collect our entire fall and holiday samples and collection in suitcases. Which are in suitcases right outside the studio. We're going to post a picture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> To Instagram because, but that is the life. So you got here first, Carla. You no, showed up like uh, an hour ago ish, oh, yeah, like yeah. half an hour to ago ish yes. to the studio. You came without Shopa, and I have to say, okay, like don't take this the wrong way, but I admire the guts that you showed up without Shopa. Didn't call in advance to say it's just going to be me. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to the interview, and like I'm going to show up, so they're going to do the interview. Was that the thinking? <laughs> I guess so. Well, I I, I told you I'll make up for Shilpa's questions. (laughs) I said I'll answer those for you. But I really respect it because, you know, you get that one shot a lot of the time. And I'm not, by the way, uh, with me, if it didn't work out, we would have found another way. (laughs) 
But I just really respect it because I think it goes to show you how when you are an entrepreneur, there are like crazy situations that come up. Your flight got totally delayed last night from the West Coast here. 12 hours. You were supposed to be here all day long showing your new merchandise. We were supposed to have press preview at 8 a.m. We landed at 3 a.m. to discover our bags were not on our flight and actually were on their way to Cleveland. Oh my! So your your um all of your new stuff, all of the new stuff Cleveland. that we were going to show at press preview with so thirty editors, thirty editors <laughs> were not they were not in New York. They were on their way to Cleveland. They were arriving on their own at eleven a.m. and we had to basically postpone press preview till tomorrow. Um, and we got all the editors lined up to come tomorrow, and then I had to go get the samples myself. Just. Uh, half an hour ago (laughs) it's so glamorous to be a founder isn't it thank goodness all the editors are on board with seeing everything tomorrow because that's a big deal what goes into having the editors see your your new it's the new collection how important is that it basically guarantees that we are thought of for any short or long lead press opportunities and canceling on them last minute yes goes over really well thankfully (laughs) they have known us now for six, seven years, and we've built a lot of relationships. And so the fact that they're willing to be flexible shows that hope, you know, that it's going to be worth it. Yeah. And (laughs) so, and I think it shows two things. First of all, the product is worth it. But second of all, the relationships that you've developed now over that time are so key. So let's go backwards in time. The idea for the company, how do you guys come up with this? It was an idea that came from an actual need. Um, so I grew up in Ecuador in a home that was actually built with the philosophy of fewer, better things. And I moved to America when I was 18 to go to college. And although my heart and passion was in fashion and uh, I had made my own clothes when I lived in Ecuador, um, I followed a traditional path of uh of a, of a finance career, and I ended up getting a degree in math at Brown, uh, but really, uh, really looking forward to one day enter the fashion world. And what I realized in the U.S. was that um, there was no shortage of products and no shortage of these gigantic, gigantic, sorry, malls uh, that we don't really have back at home. Uh, but what I did realize is that my friends and really the consumer was unsatisfied with the options that were out there. And um, and there was a big gap uh, between access to quality um, and price point and, and a lifestyle that actually satisfies um, a consumer need. And, um, you know, the goal that, that or, or the vision that I had back then was, well, why isn't there a brand that actually teaches customers how to invest in what they buy? Because this is how how I grew up in Ecuador and how many people grow up, right? When you buy something, you think about it beyond the one-time wear. Um, and, um, and, and, and so, so the brand was, was, was kind of, kind of the idea sparked back then. So your, your background is math, like you said, and you did finance early and your background, Shilpa, is technology. Computer science. Computer science. Mm -hmm. Um, so I like the, the term (laughs) invest that you use the term invest (laughs) in your fashion, but I can imagine that both of you coming in asking investors for money early on, they were like, okay, well, this isn't your background. What was the sales pitch? The hardest part was to actually pitch a business that was about um, a fashion. It was a fashion brand. Um, brand, by the way, back then was a concept that wasn't really understood. And now uh, I mean, raised, it's the most important yes, thing that everybody's investing uh, exactly. in. Exactly. And then the second part of our business that was a no-no back then is that we were making inventory and holding inventory, which was another no-no. Because it's expensive. 
They want yes, like basically uh, well, a cheap computer based company that yeah. doesn't create a product. Well, and it requires cash, and it, and it has a risk. Um, and so, so those two things were were, were the the hardest uh, challenges to lay as an opportunity uh, for that for for the mindset that investors had back then. Um, and I can tell you the story about how we ended up uh, successfully f- getting funded. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think everyone would like to hear that. Um, you know, we realized that the first challenge of explaining what a brand is was really hard ex- to explain it to men to understand why would women marry a brand. Uh, but we realized quickly that it wasn't a hard concept to explain it to a woman. In fact, we could get through that part of the conversation really quickly uh, and actually spend time on the inventory side and on the type of supply chain that we had built to de-risk um, that the, the challenges that a company that holds inventory um, has. And so uh, we changed our strategy of pitching to men only into finding the very few investors that are women that we could go and, and, and pitch our, our business model to. And uh, you'll find this funny, but uh, part of being entrepreneurs and resourceful is that we were spending time on Pinterest back then. This is 2011. And I think it was Shilpa who found this board that some person, and we should go back to see who that person was, created uh, with the women investors that existed in America. Somebody created a Pinterest <laughs> board Pinterest. of all women investors oh, yes, in America. Back then. And Angel there were in- like 10. Yeah, 10. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, angel investors. This is every like just from every single type of investor. The few women that were investors. Well, thanks and, to that person yeah. for doing the diligence for you. Exactly. <laughs> and so we quickly turned that into a spreadsheet, and we went after it. You know, that is that was the our most list. useful thing Pinterest has ever produced <laughs> for us? Yes. <laughs> for us, yes. But uh, through that list, we found this incredible um, woman investor who um, is a partner at Canaan Partners, and it's a VC. Uh, um, in Menlo Park and um, she understood what brand was right away and we actually spent like an awesome hour talking about supply chain and optimization and why this brand was going to be better than another brand and then sorry than other brands out there and uh, got the business model and, and, and she put a bet on us. So um, yeah, that, that's how it all got started. I love it seeing your eyes light up when you say supply chain and optimization. <laughs> yeah. You both of you, I, I would actually imagine that your backgrounds perhaps helped you in the in the VC community where people would say, okay, computer science, math, those are hard skill sets. And so they they have those skill sets on some levels to fall back on or to understand more broadly building a business on. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there was one um, VC pitch that we went to that at the end of the conversation, they said, we, we love you guys. We love your background. You guys have like totally made the successful company. Can we ask you one question that's really been nagging at us? And we're like, okay, yeah, sure, of course. And they're like, why fashion, right? Like finance, banking, computer science, design. Why did you guys choose fashion? Isn't that somewhat cliche? And I think it was a very poignant question, but it also points to the need that we were solving, which are that why not fashion? And that's a really great way for women to find strength and confidence and actually approach their their whole world with that kind of um, effervescence, if you will. And we really saw a business problem there that we could supply with a technical solution and really fulfill a fashion need for women. So your title 
Yes. Chief experience officer. (laughs) First of all, are there a lot of chief experience officers out there? That's kind of a newer thing, right? It definitely is. It's becoming more and more known now, but um, back in the day, definitely very few of them. And Um, did you call yourself that from day one? I did. um, So I'm a UI UX designer by trade. So I did that for 10 years before I went back to business school. Um, And in the days pre-iPhone, people didn't even know what a UI designer was. Post-iPhone, they really started to value that and the and start to value the customer experience. So you started to see a slew of people who started reaching more executive levels and positions. And we obviously couldn't call ourselves CEO. Um, So (laughs) we had to come up with a new title. And it's really just about keeping um, customers front and center of any company that you're building. And after you had been in industry for 10 years, that's a little bit longer than what most people would decide to go back to business school Probably double, almost triple. So what was the thinking at that point of going to business school versus just launching a business if that was your desire? Was was that what you were thinking? I'm going to go to business school and then I'll start a business? Honestly, I went to business school um, to know what I didn't know. Um, That's fundamentally, I didn't have a clear reason. I just felt like there was a whole world of stuff that I wasn't exposed to. And I used to joke, I wanted to understand what happened in a boardroom where good creative ideas went to die because they just never came out (laughs) the other side. I mean, this is always anytime you watch a movie or a show or you listen to music or you see uh, a brand that doesn't seem quite right. You're like, but wait, I know there's much better ideas out there than the ones that we get to see. Why does that happen? Exactly. So what is the answer? Why does it happen? Honestly, I think it's mostly about risk. Right. And so most of what you learn in business school is about all of the things that mitigate risk so you can make the best decision possible. Like Carla's job every day is to come up with all of the things that could go wrong and make the bet anyway. Right. Like the final decision (laughs) on that airplane. Right. Check your luggage. (laughs) And the entrance at the door is to understand all the terms and all of the impacts that you can have across the entire business. So I really do feel that doing that for me, not having that background guaranteed me a seat at the table. One of the other reasons that I wanted to talk to you today is what some probably would consider a risky decision, which is not to sell on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And you guys happen to be here on Prime Day. Yeah. Which is, you know, the 36 hour. Amazon bargain bonanza for the 100 million prime members in the world who are buying on Amazon. And I I, I, since I cover business and technology for ABC, I've been covering this story and it's their biggest year yet. Mm -hmm. You've decided to go the Instagram route. Yes. Really use Instagram and double down there. What's the thinking behind that? I think even bigger than just Instagram, I think you can even broaden it to say that we've decided to go the branded route. Okay. And so we really value customer journey and controlling every aspect of that customer journey. And when you give up control to an Amazon, to a wholesaler, right? I mean, to a retailer, then you, you really forego that control and customer experience. And that's how we win with really branding it well and telling that story ourselves. And it's actually the most defensible thing against Amazon. Right. So like if you're going to be an e-commerce company, the only way you're going to win is if you can offer something that Amazon can't. And so by doing that, you let go of that control. That's a very good point. Uh, But I'm sure that you've heard the alternatives point of view, which is, okay, if you're not Amazon, that's where people are spending their money and their time. How will you get the discovery portion of the business. We, we don't think that Amazon is quite there yet where it, when it comes to fashion. Uh, and I'll tell you, yeah. my house is 
filled with Amazon boxes every day. (laughs) Me and my husband buy a lot of things on Amazon, but discovering a brand on Amazon or really truly uh, being romanced by a brand uh, and, and on the on the Amazon uh, platform is we're not there yet, um, and and that's the part that uh, we come in and uh, and where we are able to actually engage with our customer in a different way and and romance them into what our lifestyle is, um, and 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 I think that you know Amazon is uh, investing time and resources and figuring out how to get there, but uh, we're, I don't think we're in a place where we where where we see that strong partnership yet. I like how you use the word romance. So walk us through what are some of the ways that you romance that customer and control that experience. Oh, definitely. So every I mean, Shilpa was getting to this. Every single touch point is incredibly important to us. From the moment where a customer finds out about our brand, like how do they find out find out about our brand? What are people saying about our brand? And um, that's where our uh, philosophy comes into place. You know, fewer better things was was truly a, a eureka eureka moment for us uh, because it gave uh, it gave uh, three words to our customers to tell their friends about what our brand is about, and um, and and so how our customers find out about our brand, and then once they come to us, they either experience our brand online or through a retail store, and we romance them there. There's a story behind every product, every. Factory that we use is an is, is is ethically sourced, has a family running it. Um, the materials that we pick are important to us from not only a luxury standpoint but also an ethical standpoint. Um, and then how we design the product that's for today's modern woman, and that's the part where we engage with her the most. We're making products that to make our lives easier, uh, but not products that make us feel dressed down. They're products that actually make us feel very powerful when we walk into the room, and that is really the business that we are. And uh, we want to make women feel strong and put together. And when we're well dressed, we feel that way. Um, and and we we are able to do that through storytelling, through photography, through campaign, through engaging with our customer. But we that very important piece can't be um, delegated to somebody else um, just now. Uh, and then all the afterthoughts, because we don't believe that you know the experience ends with purchasing a product. It's also part of our mission to educate our customers as to how to take care of those products, um, because. I think that, and that was part of what I saw when I moved to the U.S. And a lot of products and purchases, so products are purchased to be worn once or twice, uh, and that's what I mean by investment. If, Especially if, now, fast fashion exactly, is such a thing. Exactly, and that's what we were trained to think with fast fashion, right? The product is out of trend. The next season, you're going to buy more. But if you buy a truly luxur- luxurious cashmere sweater, you want to preserve that sweater. You have to learn how to wash it. I have to learn how to keep it right, and um, how to keep it from uh, from peeling. Um, how 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 long to wash it for? What what like temperature of water? Uh, how to store it in your closet? Don't hang it, fold it. Like there are so many pieces that go into preserving your products for a long time, and so all of that journey is part of uh, marrying the brand, and 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 that's what we what we were discussing earlier about. Like what does what what makes a woman marry a brand? Uh, and so, so yeah, so, so that's everything that we that we focus on, and that's why um, Shilpa's marriage and with my, me, I'm kidding, our marriage <laughs> works really well because that's why her role as CXO and you know thinking of that whole experience makes a lot of sense. And then 
from my standpoint, come like the the product piece and the branding and the images is kind of how we blend the two together and deliver that experience to 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 our customer. So much of your terminology revolves around love and relationships, <laughs> so it's no wonder the name comes from Quechua, Quechua, and it Quechua. means to love, yeah. to love. So yeah. there you go. So you have the company up and running. What was the biggest initial obstacle? <laughs> oh my goodness. Stay tuned for more No Limits after a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring. Where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions. Then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. What was the biggest initial obstacle? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, Rebecca, this one, we should, like, think about it. It's so funny because the, when, when we experienced this luggage thing today, we're like, wow, it's been, like, a couple of years since we had one of these uh, crazy episodes happen. Um, obstacles, so many, Rebecca. I mean, everything. And, and I, can, I can tell you that starting a business is the hardest thing. But uh, you, you probably remember. But well, I it, mean, it was it, like, I think the funding was a big thing, right? When doing the big pivot from not not like to criticize the male investor, they just didn't understand the problem. So like us being resourceful as entrepreneurs and being like, okay, let's solve this problem a different way. We know we have a really wonderful business um, and a viable model here. So let's just find the people who we can actually pattern match with correctly. Um, that that was the first one. And then I remember when we, um, at least one of them for me, like um, my first collection with Carla, when we did India and we went and we found the products, we made these beautiful pieces. We had great stories to tell and we get all of these products back to San Francisco. And she looks at me, she says, by the way, when we launch tomorrow and we're like spending all nighters trying to launch this collection, she's like, no one's going to buy anything. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's, this is a launch without press or marketing, by the way. Yeah. And so. <laughs> she's like, well, it, don't worry about it. That's totally normal. It's just that now we have to become a marketing company. And I'm like, okay. So it's, it's, I and think. And did, did anybody buy anything? No. Um, except for maybe a, my mom. Our friends. <laughs> that we were in back then and, and that was very purposeful we were making product first so we were not in the business of selling it yet we needed to work and that's part of the supply chain story that i was sharing we we came to that to the into this industry with a business um angle and our first problem was to make luxurious product at the best price points and so before we even start putting our dollars into marketing we needed to make sure we could actually deliver in a supply chain that could sustain this value proposition at scale. Uh, and that's the phase that Shilpa's talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't invest dollars in marketing until two years later. Wow, uh, two years. Yes. Well, to perfect, I mean, we, so I think it's an important point because most um, direct-to-consumer companies that we're grouped within um, and a great model, which essentially means we're going to market differently, right? We're cutting out the middleman in how we sell. Guyana also changed how we make. 
right? So there's two very different parts of this problem. So we've changed the entire way we manufacture and design, like the the quantity, um, the styles, the number of SKUs, like um, the countries in which we make it, where where the material comes from. We changed all of that. And then we also changed how we sold, right? So we actually tackled every single part of this business from beginning point to end point, from design, manufacturing, to inventory management, to how we then go to market, to even distribution. So every box is actually packed and shipped by a Kuyana employee, which enables us now in year seven to actually be an omni-channel company. And so you're going to hear a lot of stuff, Rebecca, about how there's all these direct-to-consumer brands that are opening stores. They are only now realizing what it means to warehouse and multi-warehouse and actually manage inventory because they outsource that piece, right? Like Guyana's mm. been doing that from day one. I mean, every single part of it, like Carla and I in the early days, like we packed in, we packed up every box and walked it down to FedEx because it costs money for them to pick it up, right? We did every single job in the company, just the two of us. And I think that shows now. And so when we're going to consider decisions like Amazon or working with another partner, it's not that that will may, that may not have, that that will happen in the future. I don't know when that will happen, but currently in our brands, um, in our branded our brand's age, um, we're in it for the long term. We're making a brand that will not go away. And so it's just not the right time to take that kind of um, partnership on. But I think that's very instructive when you think about um, your your point about a number of the other kind of startup, hot startup, yeah. young consumer brands mm-hmm. that are targeting a lot of our No Limits listeners. Yes. A lot of those brands didn't build in the way that you've built. Correct. And they're having some really tough lessons right now as a result of that. Yeah. And many of them position the inventory situation in their stores as a customer benefit that they don't carry inventory in that store. And we're we're not sure about that, right? Like, I think most customers want to go buy a product in store and take it home. Um, and, you know, because they're not able to deliver in an omni-channel way, which is actually warehousing and having inventory in those stores, I mean, they are foregoing a positive customer experience. What's been the toughest lesson for each of you along the way? Um, I think just this approach uh, with confidence for me personally, like we don't come from this industry. And so, I mean, we started a fashion company in San Francisco, right? Like coming from math and computer science. Like that's not um, really the traditional way of creating a fashion brand. And so um, coming into the room and coming into a meeting with people in New York and just knowing that we were an outsider looking in, but owning that with confidence that we have beautiful pieces that they want to hear about and really just treating that um, with confidence and, and knowing we belonged here, I think was a big lesson for me. I mean, that would be part of my sales pitch. We are different. And that is why you would want to invest in us because but, we have a skill set that when coupled with all of this is even more powerful. True, which is a very great story in, in San Francisco <laughs> and California. Um, however, here that can also be viewed as criticism, right? And disruptive. Mm. Like, are you trying to change what 
you know, the whole industry holds sacred, which I think is also part of our message, which we're not. Like, we're not trying to... Fashion is an amazing thing. You know, people love fashion. Women love fashion. We should have fun with fashion. It shouldn't have to be such a weighted, guilty decision. Like, let's enjoy looking great. So that's why we led with fewer, better things. And then we say, also, by the way, it's made with integrity and respect and better quality. And once you wear it, you're going to fall in love and want to buy more better things. Carla. Um, I learn I learn every day when it comes to hiring talent. And I think that, you know, for me, the hardest thing in running the business is um, the, how we evolve the type of people we hire and uh, and how do, how do we make that right decision. So, so let me explain. When we're at early stages of building a business, everything, our advantage uh, is, is is agility, like being fast, taking those risks fast and moving forward and choosing the right ones to take and, and going, you know, f- moving forward and just getting things done. And as the company continues to evolve, we need to make more calculated risks, right? Because um, they involve more money and resources. And we have a larger team. We also have more information. And so with more information, we can take more calculated risks. Um, and so the type of people you hire along the way, just from like a concept of startup, you can you can take those kind of as inputs as to what type of people you need along the way. Um, but when it comes to our, uh, the type of company that, 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 that we run is, it's a company that um, requires that agile persona, but then also we're in a phase where we also want experts. Mm-hmm. And those experts um, um, come from this biz- uh, industry that's not agile. So how do we find those unicorns in the industry and bring them to be a part of us? Or how do we train and coach those folks that join us um, to help us move along this journey and, and in a way that uh, we can continue to take risks in a measured way, but keep moving fast because speed is, 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 is our best friend. Um, and, and what so, I, I would guess I could be totally off here, but finding that sort of unicorn expert, you probably have to find someone who is way better than what their rank and title suggests, who's frustrated with the speed and pace of the old industry but who's the real deal at the end of the day? You're exactly right. It's those people that are doing the work for for their the higher ranks, um, yep. who are the super smart folks that are super driven and hungry to get there, but that they don't have that responsibility quite yet. Uh, and it's hard to find them. Um, and I, the funny thing is, I think it's hard to find them, but I know that they're out there. Oh, like, yes. I'm sure that people listening right now are those people. But when it, when you go to the LinkedIn profile, you go to the resume, it's so difficult to be it's hard aware to find, of that. Exactly. Is there anything that you look for that people could do to like stand out in that way? We, um, I mean, it depends really on the on the role we're hiring with uh, for, and and you know, we, for example, we have an engineering team and a PM team, and we're in San Francisco. Great, we know how to hire for that. But it's exactly those roles that we're hiring uh, that actually we have to hire from outside of San Francisco. You know, designers, merchants, uh, um, and and those are the ones that are. are it's just tough. It's also uh, tough because the, it's it's not clear as like the 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 title doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, and so we, there's a lot of work that goes behind our first screening calls and, and our interview process is actually quite long. Uh, and those that, that get through it, uh, are those that we know are right for us. And it doesn't only include a few interviews. It's a lot of interviews. It's a super day. It's a project. I mean, it's, it's, it's long. Do either of you have a favorite interview question that you always ask? I have so many. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, 
I, I mean, I, I like to take it back to to who they are as people. I think we we have a lot of checks in our interview process where we can test for skills, but I really like to ask um, how they grew up, what drives them. I think that the biggest thing that the biggest question I I want to answer after w- during an interview is what drives that person, and there are different drivers for different people. Money. Um, you know, is the big driver, um, title, kind of like ego, success, all, and and it doesn't matter what the answer is. It's just I just want to make sure we I understand what the driver is, so that when we hire that person, all the other values that matter to us are there. But we know what that driver is, so that we can work together and motivate that employee to be its most successful self. As a company that's based in love and relationships, how do you handle negative feedback? So we we're in the business of iterating. And we cannot iterate without information. And so for us, receiving feedback as a company, whether it's on how we're making our products, the customer experience, what we are delivering, it's the best gift we can get. So we are in the business of receiving that and and actually um, uh, using it as an input into how we make decisions. And that's why that agile process is really important. Um, I think that, you know, when when we talk about just teams and how they give and receive feedback in the workplace, it is tough. And I'll tell you why. We hire people that are not only incredibly smart, but that are also kind. It's one of our core values as a company. Uh, we always say we'll never um, hire the arrogant, smart person. Like that's just doesn't fit in our work environment. And when you end up hiring that type of pe- those types of, of people, it, it, we we have a hard time being you know direct and giving each other constructive criticism. And so um, the good news is that because these relationships are strong. Uh, we can we can uh, be direct and continue to encourage that in the working environment. And when you get negative feedback from a customer, how do you handle it? It's um it is a opportunity to learn. So we really view it as a learning opportunity. I mean that's like you get so much information when somebody's had a negative experience, even more than when they've had a positive experience. So what did they like? What did they not like? What affected it? And you have the opportunity to actually transform that and turn it around for them. Um, so that's why we're we're always like I read um, comments, emails inbound all the time. In fact, if there are no negative uh, pieces of information, then we're then so we're not we are not opening a channel to listen to our customers. There should always be something that we can improve. I like that. Okay, so worst advice. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? I mean this in the best possible way. So if my mom listens, I hope she doesn't get upset. But um, she actually. When I um, was about to apply to business school, she told me that now that my husband was done with residency and my prime, I was the primary kind of income earner, that now I should become a woman of leisure was her advice, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I think at the time she was, um, she knew that maybe it would motivate me more um, because she knows that that's not who I am. Did you um, answer her like that? I think I hung up um, at the time. <laughs> which I'm not proud of, but um, I, uh, I, and at the heart of it, um, which I've come to learn over time is that sometimes what people are saying is not what they intend or mean. And what she actually was saying more, it was about that she wanted to take care of, make sure I took care of myself and, and also while I, while I pursued my goals. So I think she wasn't able to communicate that fully, but that probably in and of itself was the worst advice I've received. <laughs> I really respect you for sharing that. What's your mom's name? 
Um, Vinay. Shout out to Vinay. <laughs> what I will say is that so much of the worst advice, honestly, I think about 80% of the time, the worst advice comes from those who love you, who know you, who yeah. understand you, mm-hmm. and they're trying to protect you. Yeah. They're trying to give you the best case scenario that they want for you. Yeah. And so, and it can be, I think it's almost more difficult to ignore that advice when it's coming from someone who you really do genuinely trust. Absolutely. And I think she's always going to play that role in my life where she's going to make sure she's looking out for me and knowing that there's somebody there doing that and telling me the counterpoint to my ambition is a really good grounding force. But I bet she was also one of those first customers. Yes, she was. And she actually, she, she actually was. came on that trip to India and took care of my oh, infant yes. while we went to supplier meeting. So she, well, she was go. very the best. The best. <laughs> um, So for me, I was, I was trying to, to I, I wanted to go back to the very beginnings, and I have the most terrible advice I was ever given. So uh, I received one of my performance reviews back in my time in the investment banking world. And one of the pieces of advice I received was to, quote, take that smile off my face, end of quote. Wow. Uh, You know, I started in banking, too, so I can totally hear any one of my bosses saying that to me. Because uh, I've proven to be incredibly smart and a good performer. But when I walked into the office with that smile, people thought that I was just not. And that it gives Mm -hmm. the wrong impression. And I... I was really upset. I was young. I was uh, probably, I and mean, this was in my internship, and I was probably, what, 20 years old? And I actually thought that that was right. And um, I remember changing my personality a little bit when I was in the banking years. Can I see the face you changed it to? Oh, yeah, it smile. was hard. It was hard because, like, yeah, and then it was hard. But, You're you know, like, I can't. Tough. Yeah, <laughs> It's part of me to, to, like, I always smile and laugh. And, um, and, uh, and when I left, like, I remember... My family came to visit me, and uh, I was just like ruthless, you know, trying to get things done. I was like, I thought I was the owner of the world, and very serious. And they're like, "What is wrong with you? Like, chill out." And I realized, like, it's not, it's not me. And um, and 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 back, you know, I went back to business school and started this business. And truly, what has gotten us to be where we are is being our true, authentic selves. We've uh, we started Kuyana without knowing anybody in the fashion industry. And I can tell you, anybody. We did not know a single person that had an in to tell us how to do things. No, no nobody in the, you know, in the in the press world, nobody in the manufacturing world, nobody. I mean, we formed relationships in business schools that got us to where we are and through our family and friends from from before. But uh, what has gotten us here is, 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 is us as people and actually forming true relationships with the people that have helped us along the way where um, it's a two-way relationship where they help us and we help them and we actually, uh, you know, they get to know us and, and who we are. And that's why kindness is a very important value in our company because um, that's who we are and we wouldn't be in business if that's not how we conducted it. Uh, so uh, it's a long story, but it's very easy to get persuaded in the in a different way when you're young and you're trying to be successful. Uh, and, and those Coaches and mentors are, you know, those who can mark how you, who you become and how you become that person. Um, so that was, a, that, was a, that was a tough lesson. I'm so glad you shared that story because I think that there's probably a lot of people out there who have heard similar things somewhere along the way. And, um, and I think you're proof that it's not a weakness at all. No, it's our strength. <laughs> it is our strength. 
I, honestly, both of you shared two of my favorite pieces of worst <laughs> advice I've ever heard here, and I'm not just saying that. So thank you. Thank you for coming. Good luck with all of your meetings with editors. Um, and we really appreciate it. Thank Likewise. you for having us. We're Thanks like, for coming. It was really fun. Such great worst advice from them. Well, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur comes to us as a nomination from our wonderful editor, Michelle Bancardo. Thanks, Michelle. Her name is Gabrielle Goodwin. She's the president and CEO of Gabby Bowes. And get this, she's 11 years old. Yes, an 11-year-old president and CEO. Gabby Bowes are a double-faced, double-snap barrette that prevents slippage and stays in place. And Gabrielle says that she was constantly losing her barrettes, so she and her mom invented a solution. I love that. Problem-solving from a young age. Gabby Bowes launched in 2014, four years ago, and since then, they've filled orders in all 50 states, nine countries. Gabrielle was named a 2015 South Carolina Young Entrepreneur of the Year. She's the youngest to receive the award. And in 2018, she was named Black Enterprise Teen Entrepreneur of the Year. Here she is to tell you her story. Hi, my name is Gabrielle Goodwin, and I'm the president and CEO of Gabby Bowes. My mommy and I solved the age-old problem of disappearing girls' hair breadth by inventing the first and patented double-faced double-snap barrette. How they work is they have two faces so you can see the design both ways and have teeth and craters to trap the hair. Wrap the hair around the center strip and snap one end closed and snap the other end closed. No more lost bows. Gabby bows save families time, money, and frustration. I love that chutzpah. Congratulations, Gabrielle. I wish you continued success. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Gabrielle. She's got a great story. Uh, really honored to include her here. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me those nominations here to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I'm also looking up for your career questions. You're welcome to send those to me or, you know, your general thoughts on life. We read those too. I know how busy you all are. I love it when you message us. I read it all. I really do appreciate it. I also want to say thank you to all of those of you who have been leaving us reviews, like Tanya Ahmed, who says, out of all my shows I listen to on here, RJ is my idol. I love how she projects herself, interviews others, and is so relatable. I love her and hope our paths cross one day. XOXO, devoted entrepreneur, Tani. Tani, I sure hope our paths do cross. Keep up the great work. Thank you for taking the time to leave us that review. It really does mean so much to me, genuinely, when I read nice notes like that. So thank you and good luck with everything. And finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen every week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Bancardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.